0: So I want to welcome you all here, and it's so exciting to be moving into the book of Revelation. I just love the book of Revelation. And tonight's topic, Expect the Unexpected, and tonight we're looking at the Antichrist of Bible prophecy, a very, very important study, as we'll discover. So before we open up God's Word, and before we unpack this all-important subject, what do we need to do? We need to pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you so much for bringing us all here safely together tonight. And Father, we ask and pray that as we open your word, as we open the book of Revelation, that you will indeed do what you have promised, that you will reveal to us the wonderful truths in that precious book, that book that reveals Jesus Christ and his truth, And also reveals the enemy and his deceptions. So Father, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Tonight we are going to the book of Revelation. This has become one of my, if not my very favorite book. I just love the book of Revelation. And why is that? Notice how the book begins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. The revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ The book of Revelation is ultimately about Jesus Christ. It's about who? It's about Jesus Christ that reveals him in a most beautiful way. We keep reading. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. That word there signified in the original means he gave it by signs. He gave it by what? signs and symbols. So right from the very outset, we discover that the book of Revelation is not to be taken literally by and large, but it's symbolic. And by understanding what the symbols mean, we understand what the book of Revelation is saying. Are we all together so far? Yes or no? Excellent. Let's keep going. Verse two, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Verse three, what's that first word? Blessed "Blessed is he who does what? Reads and those who are here, and most important of all, those and the words of this prophecy, and those who are keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. What is absolutely fascinating is that of all the books in the Bible, and there are 66 books in the Old and New Testament, how many books? 66. Out of 66 books in the entire Bible, there is only one book in the whole Bible where there is a blessing associated with those who are willing to read, hear, and keep the things that are written in it. And guess what book that is? The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. I find it fascinating that this book that many Christians believe ought not to be read by Christians because it's just too confusing and irrelevant, is the only book in the Bible where God says, I will bless you if you read it. Isn't that fascinating? I wonder who came up with that theory. Notice the book of Revelation is organized in a chiastic structure. That is the chiastic structure of Revelation. Are you thinking, chiastic? Like You're looking at me like, like Dave's looking at me with his scrunched nose, thinking, what on earth is chiastic? The word is chiasm. Now you're thinking, what on earth is a chiasm? Simply put, a chiasm is is a way of relating information where the most important part is in the very centre. Where's the most important part? In the very centre. A bit like archery, a dartboard, a bullseye. Where where is the greatest score when you're playing when you're shooting archery? Where's the greatest score? Right there in the center, that's the bullseye. So a chiasm enables us to understand what is at the very heart of the particular message that is being portrayed. So the book of Revelation is written in a chiastic way. Notice, the first part of the book of Revelation, the prologue, equates with the epilogue right at the end. They, go, they match, they go hand in hand. Then you've got the, seventh, sorry, the church on earth the church in heaven, the seven seals, the millennium, the seven trumpets, the seven plagues. And here you have the absolute center of the book of Revelation, which is the climax of the great controversy. And that is found, by and large, in Revelation 11:19 to chapter 15, verse This is the very heart of the book of Revelation, the absolute bullseye of the book of Revelation. That's how the book of Revelation is structured. Isn't that fascinating? The heart of Revelation is Revelation chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. Those three chapters are at the very heart of the book of Revelation. And so tonight we want to begin by exploring the heart of the book of Revelation, and we discover that the great controversy in Revelation is over what? It's over worship. I've shared with you in the past that the word worship appears in Revelation over and over and over again. It's the central issue in the book. It's the central issue in this great controversy that fills in those three chapters. In fact, in chapter 13 and chapter 14 of Revelation, the word worship appears eight times. How many times? Eight times. Seven times in reference to worshipping this power that seeks to oppose God and usurp the authority of God, and only once into worshipping the Creator God. Worship is the central issue in the book of Revelation. It has always been the central issue, always, from the very beginning of time. When Lucifer sought to be worshipped, <coughs> sought to be worshipped in heaven, as we have already discovered, all the way through to the very end of time, worship is the central issue. Tonight we want to go to the three angels' messages that, as we have discovered, prepare the world for what great event? The second coming of Jesus. Absolutely. These three angels' messages, these three all-important messages will prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. I refer to these three angels' messages as God's what? Final call. This is God's final appeal, His final message of love to the entire world to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Here is a summary, an absolute summary of these three angels' messages. The first angels' message is in relation to God calling the world to worship the Creator and follow God's what? Follow God's truth. That's a summary of the first angels' message that we read in Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. In Revelation 14, verse 8, we have the second angels' message, and here is a summary of it. The second angels' message... God exposes Satan's what? Deceptions. So here here we have a call to follow God's truth. Here we have God exposing Satan's deceptions. And now we move to the third and final of the three angels' messages. Choosing who you will worship, that is the creator, Jesus Christ, or the created one, Satan. The commandments of God or the traditions of man. The third angel's message is all about you making a choice of who you will worship. That's what it is. You go home and you read those three all-important messages. And tonight, I want to share with you the three angel's messages in six words. Here it is in six words. Easy. Anyone can understand it. First angel's message is focused on what? God's truth. Second angel's message is on God exposing Satan's lies. In the third angel's message, God says it's your Choice. choice. That's it. They're the three angels' messages. God says this is the truth. These are Satan's lies. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Your choice. Are you going to choose to abide in the lies of the devil? Or are you going to choose to accept the truths of God? And as we have gone night by night, guess what we have uncovered? We have uncovered not only God's truth, but we have also exposed what? Satan's lies. Indeed. So you and I now have a choice to make. The entire world will make this choice. And then Jesus will come to claim those that have made their decision for him. Tonight, we want to go to this all-important third angel's message where you and I have the opportunity to make a choice. Notice how this message begins. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. This is how the three angels read. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the what? The beast and his image, and receives his what? Mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. We looked at that last night together. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Did you notice? These three elements are repeated again. Did you notice that? And then the end of the third angel's message, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. This is earth's final message that God gives in order to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Now, those who receive the mark of the beast, we read, they receive the full wrath of God. And do you know what the full wrath of God is? When you read the book of Revelation, the full wrath of God is the seven last plagues. All those... That received the mark of the beast, received the seven last plagues. They are lost forever and they receive the seven last plagues. Now, my friend, you do not want to receive the seven last plagues. Your only safety is to find your life safely and securely in the hands of Jesus. In the hands of who? In the hands of Jesus. Now, why does God use such strong language? Is this strong language that we just read? I didn't make this up. I didn't write this. (laughs) I wouldn't be brave enough to write this. God wrote this through his servant John and put it in the book of Revelation. Why does God use such strong language? I'll tell you why he uses such, such strong language. God wants to make it abundantly clear to each and every person on planet earth that all those that side with the beast and his image and receive the mark of the beast will be eternally lost. Is that a big deal? That would be, well it wouldn't be. But let's try and at least somehow put it in our context today. If I knew that in 60 seconds time, say in 30 seconds time, let's say 60 seconds time, there was an aeroplane about to crash into this building, a massive aeroplane crashing into this building, would I come up to you and say, I know you're enjoying your your refreshments, but I really need to tell you something, can I just disturb you? Would I be doing that? I would be yelling, I'd be carrying on, I'd be saying, get out of the building, there's an aeroplane about to crash, We're all going to be dead. We have to get as far away from this building as possible. Isn't that true? That's what I'll be saying. So God here is trying to warn us by using this very strong language that under no circumstances are you and I to receive the mark of the beast. Now, we need to know who this beast is. We're going to talk about the mark in the next presentation, but we need to know who this power is, don't we? We need to know what is going on. Why is it so important that we know the truth? Notice why. In Revelation 13 verse 3 and 4 we read these words. John writes, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, speaking of this beast power. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped who? The dragon. Now who's the dragon? We've discovered who's the dragon. That's the devil and Satan. Satan. Revelation 12, 9 tells us that's the devil and Satan. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? What's going on at the end of time is that the dragon, the devil, he uses this human power that Revelation speaks of as the beast in order to receive worship. Nothing new under the sun. At the very beginning of time, The devil deceived Eve, not in person, but through what? Through the serpent. Isn't that right? The devil used a decoy at the very beginning of time, and at the end of time, the devil also uses this human institution that no one would ever suspect or expect, expect the unexpected, in order to receive worship. So... Who is this power that Satan uses in order to receive worship that belongs to God alone? Because that's what we're dealing with. Here we have a description of this power that the devil will use as his front man, so to speak. Revelation 13.1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Let us just pause there. We pointed out that the book of Revelation is filled with symbols. Filled with what? Symbols. Now a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? A kingdom. Okay, that's one symbol. We're going to get to a number of others in this presentation. So this is a kingdom, this beast, that is arising out of the sea. We continue reading. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Wow. Who is ultimately giving power to this power called the beast, to this kingdom? It's the dragon. We can read that. So this is what one artist, a friend of mine in fact, Phil Mackay from Port Macquarie, uh, he's an incredible artist. And he drew this based on this description in Revelation of this beast that you generally don't see in the zoo. You've never seen one of these at the zoo, have you? You'd kind of freak out if you did. This beast that has seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns, one on each horn, has the body of a leopard, Uh, the, the head and the mouth of a lion and the feet of a bear. Wow, what a strange looking beast. Now, who is this beast? Who is God here describing? What kingdom, what power, what human power is God here describing? God here is describing the Antichrist. What's God describing? The Antichrist. The Antichrist of Bible prophecy. Now that word antichrist comes to us from 1st and 2nd John. It's mentioned five times there. Don't have time to unpack um, everything concerning that. We don't have time to read those scriptures. You can go home and read those scriptures in your own time. But when most people think of antichrist, what do they think of? They think of a power that is what? Against Christ. Isn't that true? Anti being against, against Christ. Yes, that is true, but there is more to the Antichrist. Notice what the definition of the Antichrist is according to Scripture. The Antichrist is not only the adversary of Christ, that is against Christ, as the name suggests, but also is in the world, in the place of Christ. So this power will seek to be in the very place of Jesus Christ. This power will seek to take on board the prerogatives that belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And at the very foundation of that which belongs to Jesus Christ is a word beginning with W, which is what? Worship. Worship. This power will seek worship, ultimately used by the dragon to receive worship. In worshipping this power... And what this power stands for, we are ultimately worshipping the one who gives the authority to this power, and that is the dragon. Are we all together so far? This power is not only called the Antichrist, it's also called the beast, as in here in Revelation, as we've already discovered. It's called Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 and and chapter 14 and chapter 18. It's called the harlot. The man of sin, son of perdition, and also called the little horn power in Daniel chapter 7. These are all different names in different parts of Daniel, Revelation, Thessalonians, and the book of John, First and Second John, that refer to this power called the Antichrist. Now, who is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy? That's a good question, isn't it? That's what we're here to explore. Who is this power? Because God says under no circumstances are you to worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. Isn't that true? Under no circumstances. So where do we go? Google. So I went to Google today. Today I went to Google and I punched in Who is the antichrist of Bible prophecy? And notice how many hits I got. 397,000 in less than half a second. Now, what chance do I have to truly understand the truth on this subject if I simply use Google? What are my chances of going through those 390,000 websites? Slim. Do you think I'll get confused? Absolutely. There are so many different views and opinions and ideas on the Antichrist. In Christianity alone, let alone outside of Christianity, so many. We don't have time to go through all them. Tonight, guess where I want to go to find the answer? How did you guess? I want to go to the Bible. Do you think God in His Word will make it abundantly clear who the Antichrist is? Absolutely. If God says, under no circumstances are you to worship this power or receive the mark of this power, then God is going to make it abundantly clear. I'm a parent. When I was parenting, my young little girls, trust me, everything was made plain and simple as to what they were allowed to do and what they were not allowed to do and the possible consequences, amen? How many of you parents make it absolutely clear? We all do, and we're parents. And the Bible says, Jesus says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? God will reveal the truth to us. So how do we study? How do we study Bible prophecy? How do we study the Bible Period. How do we study? Let me give you a couple of principles that if you follow, you will never, ever be confused. You will never, ever be what? Confused. If you follow these simple biblical principles. Here we go. Bible prophecy is not a private interpretation. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21. You go home and read that passage. The Bible is not to be understood according to my ideas, my opinions, what I think. Because at the end of the day, who cares what I think? And with all due respect, who cares what you think? Amen? The Bible is not of private interpretation. So how do we study the Bible? This is how we study the Bible. You study a subject by comparing all of the Scriptures on the topic from Genesis to Revelation. Compare Scripture with Scripture as Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 10 tells us. You put all the pieces together and then you find the truth. Does that make sense? That's exactly the method that Jesus followed. When he did a Bible study on Bible prophecy. Now, would Jesus know how to do a study on Bible prophecy? What do you think? I think so. He's the one that gave us Bible prophecy. Notice, this is the method that Jesus used. Here is one example. Luke 24 verses 25 to 27. On the resurrection morning, resurrection Sunday, Luke records, then he said to them, he's walking with a couple of the disciples. Um, One was Cleopas. The other one, we don't know their name. And they're having a discussion about what Jesus um, went through on the cross. And he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then notice the Bible study method that Jesus used. And beginning where? At Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in some of the scriptures the things concerning himself. In how much of the scriptures? In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So when Jesus gave a Bible study concerning the prophecies that pointed to his ministry, to his suffering, he went to the book of Moses. He went right at the beginning of the Bible and all the way through to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, he gave them a Bible study. Not one text here, not one text there, out of context, a bit here, a bit there. No, 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 that's not how you find out the truth. You find out the truth by comparing all of the Scriptures, pull all the pieces together, just like a jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces, you arrange them all and then you have, voila, a clear picture of what Bible truth is. Are we all on the same page? Well, what will be the result if I choose to do my own thing? What's going to be the result if I choose to study a scripture or two and then make a decision on what the Bible has to say on that particular topic based on a scripture or two? This is what's going to happen. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, you can read it. I will end up, Peter writes, twisting, he uses that word, the meaning of Scripture to my own what? Destruction. That's how we study the Bible, and that's how we don't study the Bible. Are we all together on that? So what are we going to do tonight in order to find out who the Antichrist, the Bible prophecy is? What are we going to do? We're going to put the pieces together. What pieces? The pieces from Google? No. The pieces from Where? The Bible, the Bible, we are going to put four pieces. I would love to put 10 pieces up, but we don't have time. In your handout, you have more than 10 pieces, more than 10 pieces in your handout. But tonight, we've only got 40, 45 minutes. That's all we have. And so I've picked out four key pieces that will, beyond the shadow of a doubt, identify who this power is at the end of time. Four identifying marks of the Antichrist kingdom. Are we ready? Who's ready? Okay, who's not ready? Well, we're starting. We're starting. We are ready to go. Here we go. Number one. It rules for 42 months. 42 months. You're thinking, 42 months? That's like three and a half years. That's not a, a very long period at all. Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Notice what it says in Revelation 13, verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue 42 months. Now, in a month, in a biblical month, there are 30 days. How many days in a biblical month? 30 days. 30 times 42 is how much, the mathematicians out there? 1,260 days. Now in Bible prophecy, a day represents one year. The symbol of a day in Bible prophecy represents one year. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells us. Remember, we compare Scripture with what? Scripture. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. I'm not bringing in my own private Danny Malenkov interpretation. Amen? Because you didn't come here to listen to Danny. Amen? You can say amen. I'll say it for you. You didn't come here to listen to Danny. Amen. You came here to listen to what God has to say in His Word. Amen. So let's take a look at that principle. Numbers chapter 14 verse 34. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, God says, how many days? Forty days. For each day you shall bear your guilt. How long? One year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. The children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, wandering before they made their way into the promised land. One year for every day that the spies were spying out the land in preparation for them conquering the land shortly after they left Egypt. So that's one scripture, and I could give you another one, but that will suffice. Now this period of 1,260 years, is referred to in three different ways the three prominent ways that bible prophecy gives regarding time the 42 months in revelation 135 revelation 112 then we have this period described as a time and times and a half a time in revelation 1214 daniel 725 daniel 127 now you're thinking what's a time times and a half a time a time is 1 year how long is a time 1 year Times is how many years, do you think? Two years. And a half a time is obviously how long? Half a year or six months. Three and a half years. Now you're thinking, Danny, hang on a minute. Let's chill. Where did you get the idea that a time equals one year? Where did you come up with that? Well, we don't have time to look into that, but you go home and you read Daniel chapter 4 and verse 23. Daniel 4 and what verse? 23. There the Bible records that King Nebuchadnezzar spent Seven times, seven years, living as a vegan. Probably one of the first vegans in Babylon. Eating grass. Seven times, the Bible says, passed over him. Seven years. A time represents a year. Some of you are Googling it right now. Good for you. You'll find out that to be the truth. Revelation 11.3, here it's nice and clear. And Revelation 12.6, 1,200 and what? 60 days. There you go. It's nice and clear there. So there's three all-important ways of of describing prophetic time are given regarding this power. Seven times. And seven, in the book of Revelation, seven in the Bible is God's perfect number. What's seven? God's perfect number. So what God here is telling us is this is such an important point of giving it to you Seven times, and I've given it to you in all three ways of measuring time in Bible prophecy. Does God want us to get it? What do you think? Does God want us to get it? I think he does. I really think God wants us to get it. He's made it abundantly clear. Let's move on to point number two. It persecutes God's people. Notice what it says. It was granted to him to make what? war with the saints and to overcome them. Point number three, it speaks what? Blasphemous words against God. Now, how does someone speak blasphemy against God? Now, we could do an opinion poll. You know, We could pass the hat around and find out what each and every person considers to be biblical blasphemy, or we could do something else. What else do you think we could do? We could ask the Bible to define for us what blasphemy is. And that's what we'll do right now. So according to, well, before we do that, let's take a look at that scripture where it speaks of this power speaking about blasphemies. It says in Revelation 13:5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and... Blasphemies. This is so important that this word blasphemy appears not once, not twice, but four times in Revelation chapter 13. It appears once again in Daniel chapter 7. And by the way, I need to point out we're going to get to Daniel 7 in just a moment. Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 they go like a hand in a glove, they're twins. One is in the book of Daniel that describes this same power as the little horn power. The other one is in Revelation 13 and speaks of this beast power. It's one and the same power. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Now, blasphemy. How does the Bible define blasphemy? It defines it in two predominant ways. Firstly, making oneself equal with God. Jesus was accused of blasphemy. In John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, because he claimed to be God on earth. Now, was Jesus God on earth? Yes or no? Yes. So did Jesus commit blasphemy? No, because he was God on earth. He is God. The second way that you and I commit blasphemy is claiming the power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he was accused of forgiving sins and they were they made it abundantly clear that God alone is able to forgive sin. So, what are the two ways that you commit blasphemy? Claiming the power and prerogatives that belong to God by claiming to be God on earth. And secondly, claiming that you have the power and the prerogative to do what? To forgive sin. That is blasphemy according to Scripture. The Apostle Paul spoke of this power in this very way. Notice these words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. What's that day that the Apostle Paul is referring to? The second coming of Jesus. He's speaking of the second coming of Jesus. That day will not come unless the what comes first? The falling away. The falling away. Those two words mean apostasia or apostasy. The Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear that before Jesus comes, there would be a falling away from Bible truth. Amen? And we'll discover where the falling away from Bible truth would come from as we keep reading what the Apostle Paul has to say. And the man of sin, here is another, here is another term for this Antichrist power described as the man of sin. And sin, according to the Bible in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, is lawlessness. Sin is what? Lawlessness or willfully, knowingly breaking God's Ten Commandments or seeking to tamper with God's Ten Commandments that he wrote with his own finger on tablets of stone. We keep reading. The son of what? Perdition. Fascinating phrase. There are only two places in the New Testament where these three words are used, son of perdition. Here, to describe this antichrist power, and the other time this phrase is used is when Jesus applies it to Judas. Who does Jesus apply it to? Judas. Judas. Now let me ask you: Was Judas an insider or was he an outsider? Insider. Insider. He was an insider. Judas betrayed Jesus from the inside. Hello. Expect the unexpected. The Antichrist power will not come from out there where most Christians today are looking, where most of the world is looking, But the Antichrist power, according to what the Apostle Paul is saying, will come from the inside. Oh, where no one is expecting him to come from. Let's keep reading. He goes on. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called what? God or that is what? Worship. There's that key word. There is that key word, worshiped. He goes on, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Now let me unpack this for you. The temple of God that Paul is speaking of is not the physical temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago or the physical temple that many are seeking to rebuild in Jerusalem today. No, 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 no. We're not talking about a physical temple. When the apostle Paul speaks of the temple of God, when you compare the rest of what he says, he's talking about the people of God in the church of God. Are we all together on that? In the church of God, the Antichrist will arise. Wow. Who expected that? Let's keep reading. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? Wow. This power will claim the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone and this power will come from within the Christian church. Have mercy. Have mercy. No one's looking there, are they? No, no, no. Very, very few. Very, very few. What you're hearing tonight, you won't hear very, far. You won't hear very often at all. In Christendom today, you won't hear it for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. Let's go to point number four. This power changes God's times and laws. Now we go to the book of Daniel. I shared with you the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation go what? Hand in hand. They're twins. They're twins. One from the Old Testament. Book of Daniel, the the prophetic book of Daniel. One from the book of Revelation. In fact, Daniel and Revelation, they go hand in hand. You cannot truly understand Revelation without Daniel and you cannot truly understand Daniel without Revelation understand revelation with Daniel. Did I get that right? <laughs> anyway, you get the point. You cannot understand one without the other. You need both, for they both fill in important information. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. This power here is described, and we can tell that it's the same power because the language that Daniel here uses in Daniel 7 Sorry, Daniel 7:25. He shall speak pompous words. That word pompous there is another word for blasphemous words against the Most High, which we've already looked at. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High, which we have what? Already looked at. He goes to war according to Revelation 13 and shall intend to do what? Change times and law. Wow. This power will seek to tamper with God's holy law. That's exactly what the apostle Paul warned us would take place. Now, who is this power, that Revelation, that Daniel, that the Apostle Paul, that they are all describing? My friends, the truth is, I wish I didn't have to say this. I wish I didn't have to say this. I truly wish I didn't have to identify this power for who this power is. But I have to tell you the truth. Are you okay with me if I tell you the truth? are you really? I want to be as sensitive as I possibly can, but I need to tell you the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. Set you free free from the devil's deceptions. I want to worship Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. What about you? I want to worship Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I want to know I want to know what the deception is so that I can worship Jesus Christ. Well, my dear friends, regardless of what the websites say, regardless of what all the popular books say, what all the popular movies say, regardless of what anyone says, the truth is this Antichrist power for the last 1,500 years has and is the Roman church state. That's who the Antichrist of Revelation is. Now let me make one more thing absolutely clear. God is not here speaking against the faithful men and women who make up the Roman Catholic Church. Some 1.2 billion people around the world are Roman Catholics or claim to be Roman Catholics. God here is not speaking against people. Are we all together on that? God is not here speaking against people, I say it again. God here is speaking against a power that he prophesied some 2,500 years ago that would seek to take the prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. I'm proud to be an Australian, but I'm not very proud of what Those who came to Australia just over 200 years ago did to the people that were living here in Australia. Does that make me a bad person? Does that make me responsible for that? No. Germans are beautiful people. I've got some family that are Germans. Are they responsible for what Hitler did? Muslims. There are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. 99.9% of them... Most probably, I don't know, are lovely, wonderful people, kind people. Are they responsible for the small minority that in the name of God creates terror? No. God here is not pointing the finger at men and women who make up the Roman Catholic Church God is here, simply speaking, of a system, of a power. God is in the business of pointing us to truth. Are we all together on that? That's the truth. I love all people. I love all people. I've got Roman Catholics who are friend. I have, in fact, my background, my family background is Orthodox. Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholic Christians, there's not too much of a difference. I love Muslims, I love Buddhists, I love Hindus, I love New Age, I love agnostics, I love atheists, I love you fill in the blanks. If you're breathing and you're alive and God created you in his image, I love you and I respect you and I will seek to be at peace with you. So this is not about beating up on one group of people. No, no, no. This is simply about exposing what the Bible has to say. So let's take a look and see if this power, the Roman church state, this religio-political power, fulfills each and every one of these four identification marks of the Antichrist kingdom. Does it rule for 42 months, those 1260 years? Well, from history we know that in 538 AD, the Roman Emperor Justinian made a decree establishing the Bishop of Rome as the religious and political authority in Western Rome. 1260 years later, exactly to the very year, to the very year, on February 15, 1798, Napoleon's general Berthier marched into Rome and took Pope Pius VI captive and broke the Roman church's political power. Right on time, 1260 years later. God told us ahead of time, two and a half thousand years before it happened. Notice Revelation 13.3 tells us that this would take place. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been what? Mortally wounded. This is speaking of this mortal wound that the Church of Rome received in 1798. In Revelation 13:10, we read these words, He who leads into captivity shall also go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Speaking of the persecution that the Church of Rome partook in with the aid of the state. That's what this scripture is speaking of: that this power would also go into captivity and be killed with the sword as it killed with the sword. But notice what we read, and his deadly wound was what healed, and how much of the world? All the world marveled and followed the beast. Wow, this power has a resurrection. Who also had a resurrection? Jesus Christ. In fact, in the handout that I'm going to give you, there are 10 parallels between the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of this power. 10 incredible parallels. Let's keep going. It persecutes God's people. Did the church of Rome persecute God's people in the name of God for a millennia? That's the truth. Pope John Paul II was the very first pontiff in the church's history, to acknowledge the sins of the church in persecuting God's people in the name of God. In the year 2000, this article came out. Pope asks forgiveness for errors of the church over 2,000 years. So the church acknowledged that some 50 to 100 million Christians were killed by the church, by the church, with the aid of the state. It fulfills that identification mark also. Number three, it speaks blasphemous words against God. We discovered that blasphemy, one of the definitions, is making oneself equal with God. Notice this from an official Roman Catholic Church document. This is official Roman Catholic Church teaching. I'm not sharing with you what someone else said on Google or whatever. This is what the church says. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were, who? God. That's exactly what we read would take place. The Pope is called most holy because he is rightfully presumed to be such. He is likewise the divine monarch and supreme emperor, the King of Kings. The King of Kings, the last time I checked in my Bible, is a reference to Jesus Christ. Who is it a reference to? Jesus Christ. So if you're a mere mortal... I don't care if you're called the Pope, if you're a mere mortal and you are referring to yourself as King of Kings, guess what? That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Pure and simple. I could give you statement after statement, but we won't. The second identification for blasphemy is claiming the power and authority to, f- to forgive sins. Is there a confessional in the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah. Yes, there is. Those of you who are Roman Catholics or are ex-Roman Catholics, you'll know that To be true notice this from the church regarding the the duties of a Catholic priest the priest does not only declare that the sinner is forgiven but he really forgives him so great is the power of the priest that the judgments of heaven itself are subject to his decision whoa whoa that's a lot of power that what the priest forgives all of heaven rubber stamps? The last time I checked my Bible, there is only one who is the mediator between God and me when it comes to forgiveness, and that is Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Timothy. Point number four, it changes God's times and laws. Has the Church of Rome claim that it has the power and the prerogatives to change God's Ten Commandments. Notice what the church says. This is straight from the church. As you can see, the Catholic Ferraris Ecclesiastical Dictionary. It doesn't get more from the horse's mouth than what we're about to read. The Pope is of so great authority and power that he can modify, and notice that word, change. We read that in Daniel 7.25, didn't we? This power will think to change Laws and times. We read that. That's straight out of Daniel 7.25. Or interpret even divine laws. The Pope can modify divine law since his power is not of man but of who? He's of God. The Pope claims to be God and his representative on earth. The Holy Spirit is God's representative on earth, not the Pope with all due respect. He's a mere mortal. He is not God's representative on earth. The Holy Spirit is. That is blasphemy. Have a look at this. These are the Ten Commandments on the left as you find them in your Bible. From 1 to 10, as you read them in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 17, as originally given by who? By God. These are the Ten Commandments as commonly abbreviated in Roman Catholic catechisms. I have one here with me, a catechism and I checked this all out, just to make sure it was correct. And it is, it's all in here. What I'm sharing with you up there on the screen is all in here. These are the Ten Commandments as they appear in the Roman Catholic Catechism. How many are there? 10, 10, but there's actually nine. There's actually nine, but there's 10. Now, go figure, how does that work? Good question, thank you for asking. Commandment number two in the original has been completely deleted. You won't find it here. You go from commandment number one, I'm the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no strange gods. Well, that's been changed before me. You go from commandment number one to commandment number two, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's not commandment number two. That's commandment number three here in the original, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This has all. Ge- the second commandment that talks about do not bow down to graven images, do not make graven images, that's been deleted out of the Ten Commandments for obvious reasons. So, how do you get ten when you delete one? How do you get ten? You divide up number ten into two. So, number ten, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor his wife, so on and so forth, here has been. It's been divided into two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, number nine. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, number ten. How clever. It sounds like what happened in the garden at the very beginning of time when the serpent was described as more what? Cunning. More cunning than any other beast of the field. When I've shared this, and I've shared this so many times, I've had sincere, God-loving Roman Catholics come up to me and say, I had no idea. I've read my catechism over and over again, and I just thought we were like all other Christians and believed in all Ten Commandments because there were ten that were listed. It's like, whoa! Today... This man here, Pope Francis, and the system that he is behind is the most powerful system in the world. Make no mistake. A documentary is airing right now, right now, on CNN. And notice the title of this six-part documentary on CNN, Pope, The Most Powerful Man in History. What God said 2,000 years ago, what God said 2,500 years ago, CNN, CNN not the Bible, C-N-N, do I need to say it again? Is telling us, wow, wow. What I've shared with you this evening and preached was also taught and preached by these individuals, the Waldenses, Hugh Latimer, all these reformers, Ulrich Zwingli, Philip Melanchthon, John Knox, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley. Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Wesley, John Calvin, John Huss and a host of others. They all believed what I have shared with you tonight based on their study of the Bible and based on what they saw with their very own eyes. But guess what? Today you will not hear this message in the church that was begun on the back of Martin Luther's teachings in the Lutheran church. You won't hear this in the Baptist church. You won't hear this in the Methodist church. You won't hear this in the Pentecostal church. You won't hear this in fill in the blanks. You will not hear this anywhere today, yet that's what all these people believe, taught, and preached. Now the question is, why? Why, won't you? That is because the Bible tells us that at the end of time, the enemy will seek to suck as many as he can, especially within Christianity, into his web of worship. Today, the popular message is let's all get together and get along. Isn't that true? In Christianity, the ecumenical movement is all about let's all get together. Let's lay aside. out. Is this message one that you want to share if we're looking to all get together and just get along and be friends? That's not exactly very politically correct, is it? It's the truth, but it's not politically correct. Or should I say religiously correct? Now, I believe in getting along. Hey, I'm the first one that wants to get along. I'm the first one that wants to be friends. I'm a peace-loving person, trust me. But when it comes to Bible truth, that always trumps. I didn't even mean to use that word. When it comes to Bible truth, that always is above everything and anything. I believe in unity, but only in unity based on Bible truth. Amen? Not unity based on lies. No, never. So who will you worship? Who will you worship? Revelation 13.8, notice what it says. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That is this beast power. Ultimately, they will worship who? The dragon. Isn't that true? That's what we've read. They worship the dragon. Whose names have not been written where? In the book of the life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I love that scripture in Revelation 13. God will have a people. God will have a people who will not bend the knee. will worship Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth and they are promised if they remain true and faithful to Jesus Christ and his word if they if they worship Jesus Christ and him alone they will have their names written where in the Lamb's book of life let's pray father in heaven Wow we've been through a titanic message in your word in the book of Revelation father We thank you for your word. We thank you for prophecy that reveals to us the truth so that we need not be taken in by the lie. Father, we thank you that you have invited us to worship Jesus Christ, to be faithful to him and his word. And you have invited us by grace and by faith and through your redemptive sacrifice to choose to place our names in the Lamb's book of life. That is where we want to be tonight and every night and every day until you come. For this is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen and Amen.